when people go awry, when their businesses start to fail, is when they let the clamor of the outside world take them from their hearts, where true creativity and real innovation lie, to their heads, where it's all about the bottom line and financials. What is financial sobriety? Well, first, I'm Jim Gebhardt. Oh, I'm Matthew Grishman. That's good. We should introduce ourselves. And this podcast is all going to be about three relationships that really, when you stop and you think about them, you don't think they go together. But it's your relationship you have with money. It's a relationship you have with people who mean the most to you. And ultimately, the relationship you have with yourself. So I might imagine that those three relationships are somewhat wrapped together. That when one gets a little out of whack... Perhaps it has an effect on the others. Stick around and you'll find out. Boy, did we have a great conversation with Margaret last week. Oh, that was awesome. It was, I can't wait to do it again. For sure. You know, this, uh, this whole journey of financial sobriety and learning how to restore that relationship with self to one that has unconditional love and forgiveness and, and just taking better care of oneself, I've got to imagine that all of the things we talked about with Margaret, even taking that first step of getting our physical well-being back on track, I got to imagine that's going to have some profound impact on our mental health as well. And to be able to transition from last episode into these next couple of episodes, staying with the theme of self-care, we're really going to dive into the idea of emotional and mental wellness. And I couldn't be more excited and a little bit anxious at the same time for our guests that we're going to have join us for these next couple of episodes. And not because I'm anxious about the guests coming on, but I'm, I, I always get a little anxious about the conversation. It's still, even after all these years of going through this journey of financial sobriety, I still have moments of feeling uncomfortable when talking about things like mental and emotional sobriety, mental and emotional pain and trauma. I thought it was because we spent so much time in our training as rookie brokers on Wall Street. Oh, no. Sorry. It wasn't in that. I, I think that might have been the, 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 the module in the training that we missed. Oh, you thought that's why I was feeling a little anxious. Yeah, because it was, it was taking you back to your training days, and you were you know, reflecting on all of the care and consideration that has been placed on the mental wellness, mental health, all of that of us in our role as financial advisors. Your sarcasm is so incredibly well-timed and well-played. The good news was back then, I was able to fake it really well when I wasn't mentally and emotionally uh, too stable or feeling good about myself going through those training days. So when we get into conversations where we're going to get real, we're going we're gonna to open up our soul to the world, we're going to get vulnerable, and we're going to talk about the thoughts and feelings that have haunted us for years— why have we had such dysfunctional relationships with that person looking back at us in the mirror and, and some of the self-talk that's been happening over the years and, and how we change those conversations? Come on, you got to tell the kitty litter story. What kitty litter story? Your training days in the kitty litter box. Oh, are you kidding me? Well, I, okay, fine. But I can't name the company. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. But my point is... That there is, in that concept of faking it till you're making it, yeah. there is real damage done. Oh, absolutely. When you, I'll tell it for you. When you, as a human being, as a trainee, 
are being told that you cannot go to the restroom, but that they have a kitty litter box in the corner of the training room that if you need to relieve yourself, you can go there. Well, well right. dear God, right? Because what whole is I- wrong with that? The whole idea was, and I'm not justifying it because it was wrong. The whole idea was they're training us to be prepared to be outside salespeople that don't always have access to a bathroom. Yes, there there was a mental toll taken on the fact that if it was an emergency and you had to go, you had to pee in front of everybody in your training class in a kitty litter box. That probably won't fly by most HR standards today. Really, really. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> I, I bring that up, obviously, for a little bit of levity, but there's also a seriousness to it because, sure. well, actually, I got I to gotta say something else first. So in the context of mental health, for me personally, for me and my family, that is one of the very, very top things that we are so passionate about is having some attention and some spotlight brought to the mental health of so many people in this country. And our guest today with Melissa other famous people that have, if you will, come out and talked about the mental health challenges that they have had in life. And so for me, this is a super serious conversation. but and one very that timely. And one that I'm very passionate about. Yes. And when you stop and you think of all the impact that the isolation has had from COVID with being separate from loved ones, whether you are truly isolated and you are alone, like both of my parents, or... You're alone in the context of it's just who's ever in your house, and that's just the bubble that you're in. Well, a year of that has a, it takes a toll, and there are so many statistics that talk about the rate of depression, the rate of anxiety. We hit we we just had a call with Margaret two weeks ago, and the whole purpose of it around was food. Well, the amount of overeating and emotional eating and over drinking and overspending and overconsumption of everything is taking a massive toll on the mental health and well-being of people, not just in this country, but all over the world. Well, So the timeliness yeah. for me of this interview with Melissa is extraordinary. Oh, absolutely. I came into this pandemic with severe anxiety, and I've suffered from that and general depression for lots and lots of years. That, I believe, is what led to some of the behaviors I had as it related to money, as it related to how I interacted with people. And what I love so much about taking that conversation deeper with Melissa is, I mean, we have Melissa Bernstein coming on the show with us. And if you don't know Melissa, Melissa is the co-founder of what was at one time the largest wooden toy manufacturer in the world, a company called Melissa and Doug. And what's so fascinating about Melissa's story is how she was able to deal with some of her own mental illness, her existential depression which was a term you and I had never even heard before we talked to Melissa. No. And how through building her very successful business was able to, at some level, unconsciously, I mean, she she wasn't initially doing this intentionally, be able to throw herself into something creative to help her deal with what comes with existential depression, this desire to not want to be here anymore, to not get out of bed every day. And yeah, that classic oh. question of... What is life? Why am I here? What's life about? Absolutely. From a standpoint of what we're trying to do with financial sobriety, this idea that we have these three complex relationships with money, with people, with self, to be able to have Melissa on today to talk about that journey, how she built this business, how she dealt with that relationship with money, with business success, the fact that she built this business with her life partner, her husband, 
and how her relationship with her husband and the challenges that building a business with one's husband can take. And then ultimately, when we get into the next episode, part two of our conversation with Melissa, we're really going to do a deep dive on that relationship she had with herself and how that's been completely transformed through the process of creativity. So I'm, I'm super grateful and super excited to have Melissa on with us today. The whole theme behind March for us is all about self-care. And when I think about you and Doug and your family and everything you have created, there's a lot of alignment with this concept of financial sobriety that we've been talking to folks about. And really, financial sobriety is all about being intentional. And when I think of your life and the years that I've known you, when it comes to relationship with Doug, your business partner with a husband, I mean, how many people That's can rare. successfully say for 30 plus years, they've had a successful business partnership with the person they also share a master bedroom with? I mean, it's, it's rare. And he and I, Jim and I are fascinated by understanding how those happen, how they develop and the challenges that come and, and have to be dealt with. And then this whole you know, relationship with self and how you found this creative outlet to help heal the ache you felt when you were looking at yourself in the mirror every day. And, and so I think there are parts of your story that if, if we kind of think in this format of relationship with money from a skin deep surface and relationship with business success, and we'll gradually move into the deeper and deeper conversation about you and Doug and, and how that business partnership and marriage all work together to this moment where we're at now where you found your lifeline and creativity and what that's led you, you know, this path that you're on now. As someone who has depression, anxiety, and additional forms of very severe mental illness on both sides of my family, I got to tip my hat to you for having the courage to express what you have in such a beautifully, beautifully articulated way. I think it's going to be absolutely extraordinary to watch what you do with this next chapter of Life with Lifelines because I had the chills reading the first 30, 40 pages. It was just the concepts that you talk about and the struggle that you can so easily feel with your story resonated with me in a way uh, I can't properly express. Thank you. That means the world to me. Well, thank you again, for taking time to be here today. Your mission that you're on is huge, and the fact that you're sharing some of that with us today is amazing, Melissa. You have had a tremendous amount of success as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, and it seems to me, and Jim and I have had this discussion a lot, that you're using that success in a way that seems very intentional. It seems very aligned with what matters most to you and to Doug at your core as human beings. I mean, I remember a conversation I had with Doug years ago. We were just sitting around talking about money and wealth and entrepreneurship and the stock market and, and all this stuff. And I remember him sharing with me about how over the years, all of the wealth that you were creating as a byproduct of the joy you were creating in people's lives was all invested in the business, in making yourselves the best versions of you you could possibly be in the home that you were raising your family in. And it just, it always struck me how there wasn't a lot of meaningless squandering of those resources on things that weren't truly aligned with you. Where did that come from? Where did that start for the two of you? Wow, that's a great question. I love that one. You know, 
both Doug and I have a very strong work ethic and chips on our shoulders. <laughs> so not only did we believe that it was all about the hard work and really wanting to put in the hard work because we knew we both could make a difference doing that. We were, we were the hardest workers, the two of us together. But also we both had this need to prove ourselves and felt, I would say, inadequate, to be honest, it, deep inside. So that combination of both, I think, is a tremendous catalyst for any sort of entrepreneurial venture you're on. And then secondly, both of us too, I think one of our philosophical core tenets that's the same is we care about the one person. Like we've never really cared about the result. And we've always known both in our hearts that if we do the work, that if we deeply care about that one child and only one child truly loves our products with every ounce of his or her being, then we will be okay. And we never cared about like 20 kids or 50 kids or a thousand kids. We cared about one retailer who we would treat like gold. You know, we treated every retailer like they were our, our only customer. And at the beginning they were, you know, there was only one, but we were like, we're going to make that one, you know, so important to us that they will do anything for us. And that's really what happened. I mean, we built our business one retailer at a time, one child at a time, one product at a time. And honestly, we never left our hearts in that. We still today with lifelines, I'm talking to one person at a time. Like every day I talk to three individuals who just contact me randomly. And people are like, when I get on the phone, they're like, is it really you? Are you really <laughs> talking with me? And right. I'm like, well, I'm just you. Like, I'm not any different than any single person. So that's how we've always believed the road to success starts. Oh, that's incredible. One of the questions I had been thinking about last night when I was, I was getting really excited about seeing you again today was, you know, whether or not when you and Doug started Melissa and Doug, whether, you know, this idea of building a half a billion dollar business was part of the thought process. And, and I kind of knew the answer already because I've known you as long as I've known you. And that was just, thank you for sharing that. And can I add one other thing? Yeah. That's really important. Yes. So even more importantly, when it comes to creativity, that white boundless expanse of imagination is my home. It's the only place throughout my life that I felt safe. And for me, it is such a pure place and it's unadulterated by anyone or thing. And when I go there, it has to be pure meaning the creativity has to be about nothing but what I'm feeling in my soul. It can't be about what the outside world says, what market insights are telling me, what data is saying. So when I create, I just automatically go there and no one can break that pure boundary. So I think when it came to our products, I never would let anyone or anything tell me how to do it or what to do because I couldn't let the purity get marred in any way. And that's still how we operate. And I think when people go awry, when their businesses start to fail is when they let the clamor of the outside world take them from their hearts where true creativity and real innovation lie to their heads where it's all about the bottom line and financials. I love that concept, Melissa, because to me, I hear that and it gives me a sense of invincibility. When you stay in that space, 
because resistance, the enemy, the competition, whatever you want to label it, they're out there, right? They're, they're always trying to knock you off, knock you down, knock you out. That invincibility is something that Beth and I have always shared, my wife of 20, almost 24 years, is that when we're together and we're working together and collaborating together, we're invincible. So I, I love that concept, and thank you for, in that for bringing space. that to conversation yeah. because exactly. it is exactly that white space that I'm getting the chills just thinking about it, that if people feel comfortable knowing they can go there, right, they can go to that space and allow themselves the freedom of that space and that invincibility that comes with it, oh, my, that's, that's powerful. Yeah, and, you know, I'm so anti-convention that for me, that is my safe space. Yeah. For most people, that's the irony. For most of us, that's terrifying, right? The boundlessness of white space is like jumping off a cliff into the unknown with no parachute. But for me, that's the only thing I know that feels comfortable. So I'm so fortunate because that is my, my happy place and my resting place, I'm able to do it and trust I, I never trusted anything my whole life. I couldn't, you know, talk to a single person face to face. But if you ask me to create something from absolutely nothing, like I close my eyes and it just comes. Wow. It's wonderful that for me that being so different did allow me to do that one thing, I'd say fairly effectively. You and Doug, when you two met, you both had fairly successful careers underway. I mean, you were you were in kind of going down the investment banking route. Doug was killing it in the advertising world, making all sorts of cool TV commercials. But something happened. Something instigated the two of you, and I'll I'll never forget it, that very first video, you on Kazoo. Is that what instigated that, this need to have a blank canvas, to go to that white space to create that got you shifted from I'm going to go work for somebody else in somebody else's reality, living under somebody else's rules and creating what somebody else wants me to create. And you and Doug just, I mean, how did that all happen at that point? That's such a, that's an awesome question. So it's definitely whether you listen to what society tells you to do or the cry of your own soul to be authentic. It, it's a great story if you really want to hear it. You know, absolutely. Years, okay. Well, being someone who was all about what the world thought for most of my early years and doing what would make me be successful and validated outside myself, at about 10 years old, I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer, that I was going to go to law school because when I mentioned it to my parents, they got these excited looks in their eyes. They were like, our daughter, a lawyer? And those were the days when it was all about you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're in finance, like you went a very traditional route. So even though, again, everything in me was creative. I mean, I wrote music and, and verses at age two, but like I never associated myself as being creative because that made me weird and stigmatized and sure. nobody cool was like someone who muttered in their head and, and created verses in their head. So I decided I was gonna be a lawyer, I entered in law firms. I became fluent in Japanese because I was going to be an international lawyer, no less. And oh, wow. As the date for my LSAT started approaching, I was feeling more and more angst to the point where I was studying like crazy. And by the way, really interestingly, I was bombing these LSATs because the lot, for some reason, my brain, I don't know, because it's so simple and I think 
in a different way completely, I wasn't able to like understand these logic problems. And that was giving me tremendous consternation because I knew I wanted to apply to Columbia Law School and get in. And I was not doing well enough to get in based on what my, my pre-scores were saying. So as the, the date for the LSAT came, I wasn't sleeping. I was literally, it was like my body was telling me that this wasn't right for me, yet I wasn't listening. I was repressing it. I go into the LSAT that day. I hadn't slept for days. I'm sweating. I'm all uncomfortable. I sit down, I get the LSAT, and I have an all-out panic attack. I literally start having hyperventilating. I can't see. It's all swirling in front of me. An hour goes by. I haven't filled in one dot. And I realize with complete shock that I am not going to be able to complete this test. So I stand up. I know. I go to the form. I null out the form, which is at the beginning of the room. And I leave realizing that I am not going to be able to apply to law school. And my dream that I had told everyone from the time I was 10 years old is dead. So you would think I would then say, okay, great. I'm going to, you know, pursue something in the creative field because I'm a creative. Nope. I look at, okay, what is the most validating job that I can now get out of college. And in those days, that was the Michael Milken investment banging boom. I mean, it was the hottest thing to be in to the point when you got one of these interviews in person, there was one interview on campus and then you got flown to the city. You would get flown first class you would have dinner at Windows on the World in the, the trade centers. Oh, wow. I'm with you. That, I, you're, you're telling my story almost. <laughs> yep. And you would be, you were treated like a rare jewel. You know, it was very, it was like three in a thousand got those jobs. And it turned out because I was fluent in Japanese that they wanted me like for the first time in my life like not only did they want me they were clamoring to get me (laughs) and i got called back to new york for every single investment bank literally every single one wow and ended up just going right along with the numbers i mean i (laughs) you know i'm a i'm a word and note person numbers never spoke to me i look at numbers on a page and they are boring blah 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 yeah right You know, words, like they come off the page and they they create a symphony and they speak to me and they form these incredible verses, but not not numbers. Percentages and uh, spreadsheets weren't doing it for you. It was bad. And we had to get a mini MBA at Columbia Mm. to start our program. And I knew from the very first class that I was in big trouble because similar to the LSAT, it was the exact same feeling. I couldn't do the balance sheets and they weren't making sense to me. And I was looking around, I was like, is everyone else having trouble? And they were like, look, teacher. And I was truly having the mini panic attacks. I was, oh my gosh, I'm a fish out of water. This isn't working. So that is to speed up. I was in this job as um, an investment banker at Morgan Stanley. I got the, and I picked, I chose the highest, most highly coveted investment bank in that day. It was Morgan Stanley. I got it. And for about five days, I was, I'm wanted, I'm basking in the glow until I realized that 
it wasn't who I was and I wasn't able to do the role effectively. So little by little, it felt like I was a flower without sunlight and water. I was truly drowning and found it hard to breathe. I, I, I write about it. I felt like a two-ton gorilla was sitting on my chest. Wow. And I couldn't even like get out of bed each day. Wow. I really appreciate you sharing that story because I think there are a lot, we talk a lot about the mask that people wear. And in particular with Matthew's story, the mask that he was wearing for a long time. You talked about every 10-year-old kid wants to, at the time, wanted to be a doctor, lawyer, merchant chief, you know, something in that genre. But your body was having this visceral reaction to it. How powerful would it be if more people could listen to their body with those reactions and realize that they are not on the right path? To me, as you're saying that, that's your soul screaming at the top of its lungs. Please don't do this to me. I'm here for all kinds of reasons, but these aren't those reasons. And right, but society was screaming the opposite. Oh, society yeah. was screaming, you've made it. You have a career now. You You're good. Check the box. Thing. Yeah. Yep. And it was, you know, at Morgan Stanley, you work two years, you go to Harvard Business School, like you have it made. You come back. It's just a you're on the you're on the elevator up. You yeah. Know? It's, the, it's, you're it's just the, like, woo. It's the path to happiness. Yeah. It's a it's a complete it, illusion and a delusion but it yeah. is perceived as the, the path to happiness. Now, there are people on this earth that that should be their path, and that is what their soul is here to do. Because it brings them great joy. Because and it brings them great joy, and it, good doesn't, at it. and it doesn't feel like a four-letter word, which is yeah. starts W-O-R-K. It right. doesn't feel like work to them. But for creatives like yourself, oh, my goodness, that's got to be agony. Yeah, and, and I said at the time, I said, you know, there were two parts of it. There were the work I was doing and how I was treated as a person. And I say, if one of the two of them existed, I would have stuck it out a bit longer. Right. If I'd either enjoyed the work I was doing or felt I was treated like someone they cared about, I would have stuck it out. But the last straw for me there was Doug and I planned this incredible trip to Mount Hood, Oregon. And I had been working literally maybe a hundred plus hours a week for months Oh my! and was so, and then I was young. So, you know, you could take it more easily, but it was so brutal. In fact, can I tell one anecdote? Absolutely. The crazy story in that day was one of the second year analysts spent so many all nighters in a row that when she tried to close her eyes, they wouldn't close because the water in her eyes dried up. And she had to be rushed to the emergency room. Wow. Now, the craziest thing about that story isn't that, is that she was treated like a folk hero because of that. Oh, the badge of honor. It was the badge of honor. It was, that is who I want to be. It wasn't that people were, were appalled that she would be at a place that would allow her to do that. It was, oh my gosh, that is so cool. How can I be like her? Yeah, she probably got a promotion. Oh yeah, I'm sure she did. She was she was amazing. If she's still um, with us today. Right. Yeah, exactly. But we had this trip planned and the folklore in investment banking is never plan a trip. You will inevitably have it canceled. And I believed I was beyond that because I worked so hard. I, I cared so much to please my bosses. I was like, no, it's going to be fine. It's going to, I'm going to be able to go. And we were leaving on a Friday night after work. Thursday came, nothing said. I was, Doug, we're going a week at Mount Hood. Like, this is going to be amazing. 
Friday morning, about 10 a.m., my associate comes in and he throws this thing on my desk and he says, looks like it's going to be a long weekend. We have a 9 a.m. meeting Monday morning with a new, you know, a new deal. And I looked at him and I said, well, you know, I just want you to remember I won't be here because I'm going away this afternoon and I'm, I'm gone. And he said, no, you're not. We have a deal. You're going to cancel your trip. And I was, no, we're, we're planning on this. He was like, nope, it's not. So I was so devastated. I went to the managing director of my group and I said, listen, I just wanted to come to you because this is really important. Someone else is depending on me. I'm really exhausted. I need this week. And of course I'll come back and give you more. And he said, not a chance. This is your job and you, and, and without any empathy in his voice or being, he said, you cancel that trip. And I did, I canceled that trip, but I knew at that moment, this was not for me because not only did I not feel inspired by the work, but they saw me as just a tool. And I get it, that was that was the role. Like I shouldn't expect anymore because that's what I signed up for. And that was in its definition, the role of an analyst, but still I needed to be seen as more. Like I couldn't be at a place that just viewed me as nobody and didn't care about me at all. I don't think I could have come back to work after that. And we both were feeling if we can't get up each morning, feeling that we have a reason to be here and that we found our, you know, the word Ikigai? Yes. Tamara Levitt talks about that concept on the Calm app. Yep. That's one of her daily meditations on the Calm app. Yeah. So I'm fluent in Japanese and that in in Japan, that's like culturally, culturally, you you search for your your Ikigai, that thing that your reason for being, the reason you're, you're here. So if I couldn't find that and we couldn't find that, then what was the point of being here? And that's when we made a really big decision because in those days, you didn't risk it all to start a company. It was like you were committing career suicide by getting off that escalator. I was going to say Harry Carey just for the Japanese humor. Yeah, committing Harry Carey. Not that it's really funny. (laughs) Yeah. It's true, though. It was like that because basically you weren't going to get back in once you got out. But we, we both felt like there was no choice. We couldn't continue in the way we were feeling like we were denying the cry of our own soul to do something more meaningful. And throughout all those years, from the very beginning when you both had the courage to risk it all and go, as this built and as this was created, everything as far as the success always seemed to stay in alignment with what mattered most to you and Doug. That was just amazing to watch. And when I think about the partnership that the two of you have built over 30 years of creating Melissa and Doug and all of the joy that that has created for millions and millions of families around the world, this is rare. Not only for a business partnership to be able to thrive like that, but let alone a husband and a wife as business partners to do that. That kind of story fascinates us, fascinates us, especially the stories about how that all started and how that how that path just meandered for years and shifted and changed and course corrected. I mean, tell, tell us about that process, being business partners, best friends, married, 
What was that experience like going through that together? Yeah, I, I'd love to. So, you know, now mentoring so many entrepreneurs, because that's one of the things I also love doing more than anything. I now see that to forge a successful partnership, and if you think of a partnership, which I always do as a circle, you know, or a pie or whatever you want to call it, if the two partners are on the same side of the pie, it's never going to work. You have to have in your pie all the different ingredients that it takes to forge a successful business. And just by luck, I mean, it wasn't anything more. I think Doug and I are truly each a different side of our pie. I'm one side and he's the other because we're both extremely strong people. Even though I'm an introvert and, and people don't hear my voice, I'm about as dogmatic and opinionated and strong-willed as it gets. I don't know if there's anyone stronger. I mean, I am, when I feel something, like there's no telling me <laughs> no. And he, I mean, he even more so. It's not like we had one strong one week and we were just kind of balancing each other out. But, you know, it turned out that we both had our sides and we, for the most part, stayed out of each other's piece of the pie and allowed each of us to do our thing. And, you know, mine became, and it's not that we, we can't do the other person's thing either. I mean, Doug is very creative and he's very visionary. And the truth is I can, you know, do the number stuff and do that business stuff too. We just knew kind of what our sweet spot was. And I think we wanted to contribute to the business in the way we could most benefit it. So I really stayed on the creative and sales side, you know, for many years I ran sales and did sales myself mm -hmm. and he stayed on everything else, all the operations and all that other stuff. And it ended up working out so that we could both really do our thing, feel really empowered and not stepped on by the other, come together and ask the questions that would help each of us in our, in our given half of the pie, but really fuel the business and grow it successfully. You both seem to have, whether this happened because you went out and sought it and were taught this, or somehow organically within you, you just intuitively figured this out. I mean, you and Doug each have unique abilities. And when you work as partners, holding each other accountable and being the partner that can clear the clutter away so you stay in your unique ability, he stays within his unique ability, and you put those together— unbelievable things happen, but yet the support that I know you both had for one another in each other's roles. I mean, some of my favorite stories I've that you both have shared with me are the, are the times where the two of you would wake up in the, or you would wake up in the middle of the night with this incredible idea, a new concept, and Doug would get up and you two would have this incredible night just brainstorming out how this thing would happen right there in your master bedroom. So much of what was created was together <laughs> like that in the middle of the night. I love yeah. that stuff. Yeah, I think we just both fueled each other for our ideas and what could be and taking risks. And it really was, you know, a good partnership. I mean, hey, yeah. we're two strong people. So it wasn't without, you know, times that we disagreed with each other and fought for what we believed that was different than the other. But I think we both really respect each other. So that helps too. And he really respects my creative judgment and I really respect his business acumen. 
you know, at the end of the day, what he said in terms of operations, I would abide by and same with creative. He would say, I don't agree with you, but if you really feel that way, and usually I would and just do it my way. Um, and same with him, we would defer to the other. And that was a good thing. That's, that's awesome. That was a fascinating conversation. I could talk to her for weeks and weeks and weeks. Well, you have been known to talk to a wrong number for a couple of weeks. Oh, I could only this, imagine what you would do. This is a right number. If we had Melissa down the street. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, in an interview like this, there's only so many stories that she can tell. But I would love to hear those late night creativity sessions where she and Doug were up all night. Yeah creating a wooden toy or a wooden puzzle and well that's how they did it they're I mean, scattered that... they they were at the time we had little ones they were scattered all over our playroom <laughs> right right so i mean i would love to connect the dots on how i on spent... how that happened yeah, yeah exactly well and that you know I've, I've known obviously doug and melissa for for many 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 years going back to when they first met and to have been somebody privileged to hear some of those specific stories about literally how they would wake up in the middle of the night and create the next fuzzy puzzle idea. It was awesome how they did that and how they always seemed to have this relationship with money and with success in alignment with what truly mattered to them most. I mean, the fact that the wealth that they've created has all been very intentionally put back into the business to create more joy in the lives of families and children to put it into a house where they could raise their own six children and create their own sanctuary to have this creativity just firing at a maximum. Well, she she wasn't doing this to make the money to do all of that. No, no. They didn't start out so on this journey that, in, for the purpose of making money. Right, in that classic chase for the money so that I—right? Hello? Yeah, my so story. Absolutely. That it, you can then go have the things you want to do and your people are going to love you and you'll feel better about yourself. She was— which is going to be coming up in the next episode, was trying to help herself. Yes. She wanted to have impact on the world. Big she time. wanted to bring joy and happiness to others in the world because she wanted that for herself. She wanted to feel like she had a place in this world. She had purpose in this world. And what I can't wait for in the second half of our conversation with Melissa is the unbelievable reveal yeah. that she's going to share with us and the unbelievably generous offer that she's going yes, to make. Just truly I mean, extraordinary. I'm, uh, I've already bitten my nails down to my knuckles in anticipation. I can't wait. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and be sure to subscribe. And check out our website, yourfinancialsobriety.com. Thanks again for listening today. Here to help you find more clarity, confidence, and capability along your journey into financial sobriety. I'm Matthew Grishman. And I'm Jim Gebhardt. Be intentional with your money. Jim Gebhardt is a registered representative of and securities offered through Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, member SIPC. Jim Gebhardt and Matthew Grishman are investment advisor representatives of Gebhardt Group Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Brokers International Financial Services, LLC and Gebhardt Group Incorporated are not affiliated. The opinions in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or investment recommendations. To determine which investments or financial advice may be appropriate for you, consult a financial advisor prior to investing. Any reference to market performance is based on historical information and there is no expressed or implied guarantee of future performance.